Uh, tonight we do the, the final years of Egyptian control over the land of Israel and the early years of Syrian control over the land of Israel. The shift from the Ptolemies to the Seleucids. And what happened within the Jewish world, because there were major changes in Judaism and in Jewish life in, er- in Eretz Israel at this time. Uh, we left off last week with a question. Why... After a hundred years of Ptolemaic Egyptian control over the land of Israel, which was stable and uh, relatively fruitful for the Jews of Eretz Israel, where they didn't have to uh, experience the, the ravages of war, why would they, in the year 200, sell out their Egyptian overlords in favor of the incoming Syrians? Why did they switch teams? I mean, normally, the tradition in the Jewish diaspora is to be loyal to whoever is your most recent master. Um, you know, Dina de Malchuta Dina, loyalty, not treason. So why did they sh- shift sides? So in order to answer that question, we have to realize that Jewry in Israel was divided. It was divided politically because of the system of taxation. The system of taxation. Usually... There was someone in charge of collecting the taxes in the countryside on behalf of the king for which that person paid an annual fee, a tax farmer. You pay the crown a certain sum of money, an attractive big lump sum of money you pay to the the king, and then you have the right as as, uh, as the legally deputized person to go extracting money from the citizenry. Well, for most of the Ptolemaic era, the high priest was responsible for that function of government. But, um, in the, late in the reign of Ptolemy III, a Joseph from the family of the Tobiads, who uh, had their place of power on the east side of the Jordan River, in um, the land of Ammon, um, he, pur- he purchased this right, and for the next 22 years he exercised that right. Some historians will claim this was from the years 222 to the year 200, between the 4th and 5th uh, Ptolemaic Seleucid Wars. Others will claim it was from the year 240 to 218, between the 3rd and 4th Wars. We're not exactly sure when this happened, but it was late in the 3rd century, where this Tobiad family now had economic control over the country because they bought the right to collect taxes from the king. And they, they stripped that right from the temple and the high priesthood. During this era, inflation was rampant and copper coins began replacing uh, silver. <coughs> and Syria, um, or rather, land of Israel, and the, the Syrian provinces of the Ptolemies were stripped to the bone. The citizenry became poor, while the Tobiads became rich. Um, the family of the Onayids, Chonio, Onias, was the, the traditional family of the high priesthood they are losing in this power struggle with the Tobiads. So you could understand why the family of the high priest would be annoyed with the Ptolemies, annoyed with Egyptian rule, and look to someone else for salvation and to restore them to their full power. And who is that someone else? The Seleucids in Syria. So we'll see a divided Jewry because of uh, power struggles and financial control. Excuse me. Yeah. Well, these... Paid tax collectors like the Tobias family, was yeah. that also a practice among the Syrians? It was a practice in all of the outer provinces of the Macedonian kingdoms. So there's no guarantee, really, that the successor of the Syria would be any better or worse than No, uh, that, that, that is absolutely true. Uh, but the, the best you could hope for, and what will happen, is that if you pick the right team in the upcoming war, you'll extract tax concessions from the, the new monarch in, uh, as uh, compensation for your loyalty, which is exactly what happens in 198 when Antiochus III will uh, make exempt from taxation whole categories of the Jewish ecclesiastical hierarchy um, because they picked the right team. Okay. Um, Joseph's son, Hyrcanus, tried to depose his father in 210 and lost. So you see, sometimes when uh, Jewry is divided, even within a family you could have divisions and political differences leading to someone having to run away. We knew that from David and his son. 
uh, David and Absalom, exactly. So, jo- so Hyrcanus, the son of Joseph, had to run away from Jerusalem and back to the Transjordanian holdings when he lost this battle with his father. Okay. Antiochus III, upon the Syrian victory, ends up restoring the high priest as the head of the Jewish nation and giving the tax-collecting authorities back to the temple. So, what happened here in the late 3rd century is that competing factions in Jerusalem sided on different teams in the Egyptian-Syrian War, and for the first time since Yirmiyahu, in the year 586, you have the Jews of Jerusalem concerning themselves with world politics and how it affects them. Because normally, the Jewish approach is, we side with the, with the team that God is on. You know, what the prophets will tell us that, you know, God is on the side of the Arameans, or God is on the side of the Egyptians or the Babylonians. We have some prophetic voice saying, this side in international conflict is the one that's going to win. Align yourselves with them and become subservient to their, their, master, their, their king. All right? That's not what happens here. You don't have the prophetic voice saying, one team is going to win, therefore you must be with them. You simply have... Jews who are venal and corrupt, or not necessarily corrupt, but looking to protect their own family's interest, siding with one team or another, and following the, the, you know, the, the world political stage, without regard for who's the greater moral uh, side in the conflict. Doesn't, morality doesn't matter anymore. So this actually can explain some of the Bible, and the Bible's relationship to known secular history. It's an interesting point. Um... In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and the first part of Daniel, there are many errors we've, we've been through before. In the, 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 the second lecture this season was about the missing 164 years. How does that even happen? Well, because the rabbis, Rabbi Yossi ben Chalafta, had a, you know, an incorrect <coughs> interpretation of the past, and his incorrect interpretation of the past was largely based upon the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which itself had a lot of errors. So why did it have mistakes in it? Answer that the Jews in the 4th century before the Common Era had no interest in secular history. It didn't matter to them. You side with the team that God wants to win, but you don't need to, to remember who won the, you know, the, the War of 1812 or the, the, the Mexican-American War. These things don't matter. You know, you know, God picks the winners and we'll side with the winners. But we don't really need to know the details. So therefore, in writing it down, the details were a little bit muddled and wrong. By contrast, by stark contrast, the author of Daniel chapter 11 knows secular history down to the exact minutia. Okay, from basically the wars of the Diadochi, the successors of Alexander, until the year 168 before the Common Era, if you read between the lines of Daniel chapter 11, the author knows it exactly. Why does he know it? Because he cares to know it. Since at that time, politics was of interest. Jews care about politics because you've got to pick the right team. It's no longer an issue of God and prophecy. It's an issue of, I better guess right. So people actually pay attention to the newspaper. And thus Daniel 11 is very, very accurate. Um, Josephus, in uh, his antiquities, preserves the charter granted by the Seleucid king Antiochus III to the Jews of Judea upon his conquest. So like I said, when the new fellow wins and takes over, he has to cut a deal with the citizenry, or with the residents of the new occupied province. And if they sided with him in conflict, then he'll be more generous and magnanimous in offering concessions. So what is in this charter um, at the beginning of the 2nd century BCE that the Jews get? What are the Jews? The Jews are an ethnos or a tribal nation and are legally bound to worship the God of Jerusalem and keep their ancestral laws. Interesting. Just like what happened in 458 with Artaxerxes and Ezra, where the Torah becomes the law of the land, so too under Antiochus III, the Torah is the law of the land. If you were a Jew and you live in the province of Judea, you must abide by Torah law as interpreted by the, by the, uh, the temple authorities. Okay? Um, no foreign cults are allowed in Judea. Basically, the Jews rule themselves and are without foreign interference. So that's not to say that there are no goyim in the country. There are, but basically not in the core of the province of Judea, of the vicinity of Jerusalem. It's a Jewish enclave. There are, there are almost no Gentiles there, and if there was a Gentile there, he, could, he or she could not worship in his faith the way he would have wanted to. No idolatry in the vicinity of the temple, in the vicinity of Jerusalem. 
we're getting there, yes. Much more so than they were in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, maybe even more so than they were in the days of Alexander, because the Torah has now been entrenched in society and the law of the land for a good three centuries or close to it, the average Jew was more pious. That's not to say that they were uh, adhering to Pharisaic interpretations of what we would later call Rabbinic Halakha, but they're, they're much more Jewish than they were in the days of the, uh, the Tanakh. Okay, so what, when do you need Gentiles to enter the province? Only when the security situation deteriorates or taxes fall in arrears, which can happen. Then what would happen? The Seleucids would place a garrison at Antonia. What is Antonia? It's the military compound just to the north of the of the temple. The uh, r- the remnants of that are st- still exist to this day. Uh, the is that the same? So the Romans it? called it Antonin, uh, Antonina, it, it, but it existed already in in Macedonian days, uh, not under that name, under a different name. But there was this. Um, Military outpost that abutted the uh, the temple complex. Okay, so the Jerusia and the popular assembly run the affairs of state. It's not a democracy, but it's basically an aristocratic uh, oligarchy. Some prominent members of society have a say in the, the affairs of state. The role of the high priest is actually a lacuna of history. We don't really know what secular role, aside from some responsibility in tax collection, was played by the high priest. Because, in truth, if we go back to the book of Ezra, the, the, the role of the high priest is entirely left out. Remember, we weren't even sure if Ezra himself functioned as a high priest, or was he just some sort of figure uh, assigned power by the, by, the, by the Persian monarchy. So we're, we're not 100% sure about what the high priest did. But who was exempted from taxes? That's, that's the real question. So the exemptions were not as extensive as, on the, as in the Persian period, b- but it does include lay scholars for the first time. We'll address this maybe more in about 15 minutes. The, uh, the Chachamim who were non-Kohanim. Because remember, in the old days of the Tanakh, who were the scholars of, the, of, of religious law? Kohanim, where they were supposed to be. Were there lay scholars, Yisraelim, who were very learned? We don't hear of them. Now we begin to hear of them, and they get tax exemptions. For, for functioning in some official capacity. Okay. Um, the first temple was basically Solomon's uh, royal chapel. Shlomo HaMelech builds the, the Beit HaMikdash, the first one, uh, as the, the, the royal place of worship. But it's not the exclusive place of worship in the land of Israel. We know that from a uh, cursory reading of Malachi Malaf and Bet, that there were Bamoth, there were high places all over the countryside, and the prophets would scream and cry against the practice of the Bamoth, that it's wrong, that you need to have a centralized place of worship. The Bamoth were for sacrificial. For, yes, for animal sacrifices, yes. Okay, the second temple... But no liturgy. No liturgy, no, no. The second temple was paid for by Darius and sustained by the Persian and Macedonian monarchs. It suffered significant damage in the last per, uh, Greek, Egypt, um, Egyptian-Syrian war, and so had to be rebuilt or uh, renovated. Antiochus offered tax exemptions uh, to the Jews, but the Jews had to pay for the renovations. What did uh, Antiochus pay for? He paid for the korbanot, the animal sacrifices, the, the melach, the salt, the solat, the, the meal offerings, and the yain, the wine. Why does he pay for it? Well, just like his predecessors, the Talmis paid for it, and the Achaemenid Persians paid for it, the, the foreign king pays for the functioning of the temple. They didn't just do it in Jerusalem, they did it in a lot of different places, where you have these you know, conquered peoples who have a house of worship, and the king pays for the, the, the functioning of the, of the temple. Okay, according to the, the Jewish tradition, who pays for the functioning of the temple? Everybody. Every Jew. Okay, but that's not in the Torah. The half shekel is not in the Torah. It certainly is not. What we read on Parshat Shkalim talks about the Trumat Adanim. It was a one-time donation in the days of the wilderness to build the expensive tabernacle, the expensive Mishkan. There is no reference in the Torah to an annual tax of a half shekel on every Jew. In the book of Nehemiah, what did we read? We read about a third of a shekel being imposed by 
communal consent, not by the law of Moses, but by communal consent, a third of a shekel, to sustain the temple, at least in the short term. That fell into disuse, and the, 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 the heathen monarchs would pay for everything. So when does the half shekel come into existence? Sometime during the Hasmonean period, probably in the year 125. Uh, why during the Hasmonean period? Because they're Jewish kings. It's one thing for a goy, who's a, a king some, in some other place, to say, all right, I'll pay for the Jewish temple. But for the Jewish king to pay for the Jewish temple doesn't make any sense. It, why would he do that? He would just impose taxation upon the, 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 the populace. Okay, so that's the origins of the Machatzir shekel. but in Antiochus' time, he paid for everything. It's very magnanimous of him. So Antiochus III is a liberator in the eyes of the Jewish tradition. Unlike his successor two kings later, Antiochus IV, who will be seen as the ultimate bad guy. Excuse me, but from what you're saying, this tax for the half a shekel yeah. was only on Israeli Jews, not throughout the world, because... So the, so the halakha imposed it upon all Jews, even beyond the borders of the, of the kingdom of the Hasmoneans, and the only question is, would the Jews of the diaspora pay for it? And the answer is, for the most part, yes. At least if you read rabbinic literature, and even according to Josephus, uh, and actually Roman literature as well, it, we're led to believe that Jews in, in the Egyptian diaspora did pay for it, and they, they sent gold coins to, uh, to the land of Israel. Even though it's a silver tax, they sent gold because it weighs, uh, it weighs it's he- uh, you know, heavier, more expensive, so you'll have less to carry on the, on the long-distance trip. Okay. What happens to uh, the money that is given by the Seleucid king to the temple when the temple cult is able to sustain itself through less than 100% of the king's donation. So what happens to the rest? Who, who owns it? Machlokas. Machlokas, us and them. So they, the kings, will say, oh, it's my money, I gave it to you so you could function as a house of God or house of your God. So give it back to me. I own it. Or if, if it can be, be stored there, but when I want it, I'll take it. And what do the Jews say? No, it's sacred funds. Holy, holy, holy. You cannot touch it. It's, you know, it's for our God. This will be one of the reasons in the breakdown in Jewish Seleucid relations over the next 20 years, 25 years. Now, part of it, most of it is about acculturation and forced uh, acculturation, uh, Hellenization, where the, the assimilated Jews and the, the, the Seleucid government want to impose their, their agenda, their cultural agenda, on all the province of Judea. But uh, an element of the machlokat, of the disagreement, was over who controls the leftover monies. So there's, aside from religious angle, there's always a uh, financial angle. Okay. The law that, uh, for the rest of tonight's talk, I'm going to discuss sort of disparate topics that affect Jewish life at this time. The law that Gentiles cannot enter the temple is not found in the Torah. You're not going to find a a pasuk in the Torah that says that a non-Jew cannot enter the temple confines. What is there a law about separation and living? Well, that's true. The only law in the books is that a czar, a non-Kohen, cannot get close. How close? Well, they certainly can't go in the Holy of Holies. Even a Kohen can't go aside from a Yom Kippur. So how far can a czar, a non-Kohen, go? Well, So an Arel is compared halachically to the the czar, although that's not explicit in the Torah. It says the Arel can't bring the Koban Pesach. But how far can they go in? doesn't say. In the Second Temple period, it was assumed that this is true, that a non-Jew cannot cross some kind of threshold. And so a fence was put up saying, do not cross, Jews only beyond this point. That's going to serve to offend the Syrian rulers who are trying to impose an agenda of, of, of Hellenization on Jewry and don't want there to be this sacred space that's off-limits to foreign influence. In other words, as long as a, a, a heathen can go somewhere so he can try to convince the Jews of the, of the greatness of, of Greek culture, but if there's this enclave where heathens cannot go, it's like pristine Judaism, that's going to bother them. Especially if they send money for it. That's also true, yeah. <laughs> but, they were, but they were able to bring korbanos to them. The, korbanos could be brought on their behalf. 
by the officiating Jews. What about in Roman times? Same thing held true. They couldn't actually bring the sacrifice, but lean their hands on it, and, you know, next to the altar. Couldn't get that close. Okay. Originally, the Temple of Service had no prayers. In Ben Sira's generation, which is about the year 200 or the year 190 before the Common Era, there is already a civic prayer, which goes on to become the nucleus of the Amidah. Only in the diaspora, where Jews don't have the sacrificial cult, does prayer become very important in the mid-Second Temple period during the, the Ptolemaic era. And for them, Yom Kippur was a big deal. In Eretz Yisrael, Yom Kippur is the prerogative of the Kohen Gadol. And if you want to be a, a, a tourist and watch the, his activities, so then yes, you could do that, and thousands of people did it. But an active Yom Kippur, where you actually do something, like say a lot of prayers and repent... It was primarily a diaspora phenomenon that would later trickle down into Eretz Yisrael. Um, Can you roll back what you said of uh, a secular prayer that led to... A, civic prayer. A civic prayer yeah. that led to the Amidah. Okay, so if you go to, to, to um, Masechet Tanit, you'll find that there were eight brachot that were recited uh, in the temple. Some of them are familiar to us in that they look like some of the brachot of Ashmon Ezrei. Others, not so much. Um, actually, this is, no, it's, it's in it's Mishnah Tamid, but it, you'll also see a reference to it in Tanis. Um, that's a temple-era liturgy. That doesn't get off the ground right away at the beginning of the Second Temple period. It develops over time. We're speculating that it's roughly around... Uh, the transition from Egyptian to Syrian control, in the days of Ben Sira, you, f- you first have references to prayer in the temple. Later, you'll have in the Mishnah a reference to a, a synagogue on the Temple Mount. However, some scholars deny that that's true. They say that the Knesset doesn't mean like a Beta Knesset, like we say, a synagogue. It means something totally different. Yeah. That's to, it's to bolster the legitimacy of those prayer services by retrojecting them onto the patriarchs. Okay, so um, the the Macedonians, not my phone, my ringtone, but not my phone. The Macedonians tended to prefer the native clergy over the secular aristocracy. This is an interesting point. The secular aristocracy, like the Tobiads, were cozying up to the Egyptians. The uh, the Syrians tended to prefer the local clergy because they didn't have political aspirations. All they had were ecclesiastical aspirations. You know, I want to be the high priest. I want to be the guy who goes into the Holy of Holies to worship my God on my special occasion. But from a Gentile point of view, who cares? That's not a, a, a very serious or threatening ambition. Therefore, give those people control over society and you won't have uh, armed conflict. Okay? Which is precisely why... When the priests were in control, although you had messianic uh, sentiment and messianic fervor, you had no messianic movement. It's only later when the sort of the Pharisees uh, take control of society that you actually have people willing to die for a better future. As long as the Kohanim are in control and there's a functioning temple, it's ba- they're basically satisfied. And so, from a Gentile uh, point of view, the status quo then be good. Um, it was in the Ptolemaic era that the high priest takes on a somewhat exalted, exalted status. And in Ben Sira's generation, the high priest was held as a living symbol of the nation. Where in our davening do we um, reference the, the Ben Sira's uh, highfalutin language about the greatness of the Kohen Gadol? What, what piyut? What, what piyut? Mare Kohen, Exactly. Uh, the, the, in the Mara Kohen Piyut in the Yom Kippur davening so we say that when he came out of the Holy of Holies he was shining like the brightness of the firmament it was the greatest thing ever Ben Sira is the one who writes all, about all that stuff and to him the greatest high priest was Simon II Shimon HaSheni also known as Shimon HaZadik okay. Simon I was in the late 4th century BCE a little bit after, after Alexander not a contemporary of Alexander, so that story could never have happened, even if you want to say he was the Shimon Tzadik, but he wasn't the Shimon Tzadik. He was Simon the First. Simon the Second is Shimon Tzadik, who, who, who 
holds the office of the high priesthood from about 210 to about 190. He is the one who is responsible for doing the uh, renovations and restoration of the temple after it had been damaged in the Fifth War. What was so great about him? Was he a scholar of the Torah? Was, what, what was what was so wonderful? He was a great administrator. He was able to get the Beit HaMikdash back functioning as it is supposed to after some era of turmoil. That was his major accomplishment. And also, he was one of the last, really his son would be the last, um, undisputed, legitimate high priest. But what, what do I mean by saying undisputed, legitimate high priest? Lineage from our own. So lineage, not just from our own, but from whom? From Sadok HaKohen. When was Sadok the high priest? In the days of David, King David, David Melech. So Sadok replaced the progeny of Eli. That family was basically kicked out of the high priesthood. Eli died, he broke his neck, he fell backward, his sons were corrupt. That family was given the boot. And Sadok and the Tzadokite line is the legitimate high priest for the next 800 years. That's a very long line. Shimonat Tzadok is the last or second to last of that line who, whose authority was never challenged. Everyone agreed he is the high priest. Subsequent to that, what do we find? Bribery for uh, Antiochus IV for the office of high priest. Jason, Menelaus, then an intersacerdotum where there was no high priest at all, or actually Alcimus, who was a, was a, was a real uh, terrible guy, and then the, the Hashmonaim take over, and they're not Tzadokites. They're lesser clergy who basically usurp the high priesthood. So, Tzado, so Shimonat Tzadik is a hero for that reason. He's remembered fondly as the last of the greats. Okay. Um, for Ben Sira, the Tzadokite line was even greater than the Davidic line. Because the Davidic line lasted how long? Eh, about 400 years. And then what happened? Galut Babel. We went to Babylonia. And there's no more Davidic kings. Whereas the Tzadokite line, it lasted in the first temple and the second temple. A long, long time. All right. Um, the Pharisees claim Shimon HaTzadik for themselves. Where do we do that? Where do the Pharisees uh, latch on to Shimon HaTzadik? In what piece of literature? It's the uh, the second paragraph of this book. Matthew. <laughs> no, not Matthew. It's in the sitter. Oh. In the art school, page 544. Pirkei <laughs> What's the second mission of Pirkei Avot? Shimon Hatsadi Kaya Mishare Knesset Hagdola. Hu Haya Omer. Good. Okay, so Shimon Atzadik is listed in the chain of tradition of the oral law. Moses, Joshua, the elders, the prophets, the men of the great assembly, Simon the righteous, Antigonus of Soho, and then the five sets of pairs, and then a whole bunch of rabbis of the Tanaitic period. Well, what is Shimon Hatzadik doing in a list? Of, of the masters of the oral law. The, the Kohanim were not masters of the oral law, at least the, the way rabbinic Judaism looks back upon things. It's, the Kohanim usually were uh, looked down upon as having either been inept, corrupt, or um, hostile to the oral law. And this, the, the Tzadokite line are the, uh, the forebears of the Sadducees, of the Tzadokim. So why is a, a Kohen Gadol, Shimon HaTzadik, Listed in this uh, this sequence of chain of events. Answer. Okay, exactly. They wanted the rabbis who were the authors of Pirkei Avot would like to tie the rabbinic period back to the Bible some way, somehow. And the only way they can do it to connect the rabbis or the zugot with the neviim is through the sort of the phantom Anshe Knesset Hagdola, which we know nothing about. And if you notice, I didn't talk about, I didn't say much about Anshik Nesed Agdola in this series of lectures because we don't really know anything about them. All we know about them is from rabbinic literature, which is inherently suspect because it's trying to create a connection. All right, Shimonat Tzadik, who's from at least ostensibly the other team, the, the Tzadikites, the Sadducees, is now put in our literature as the connection because we want to have an unbroken chain. Okay, the, that's not to say 
that Shimon HaTzadik uh, was in any way hostile to the oral law. All I'm saying is that it sort of pre- predates the, much of the oral law, that the notion of the Torah Shabal Peh only comes into being basically in the days of Hillel and Shammai. Before that, there's only one Torah. The notion of a dual Torah is a later, is a later concept and terminology. So Shimon HaTzadik is put here in the, in, the, in the list for this purpose, to make the connection. How well, much after? Well, when is, Perkyav, when, when is Perkyavot written? Perkyavot is written sometime around the year 250. However, Yeshomrim, there are those who, was, who will say that the first chapter of Perkyavot is much older than the rest of it. That it's a standalone document that actually dates back to uh, the pre-destruction era. Because if you, if you, if you notice, the first parak of, of Perkyavot is the, 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 the biblical heroes... And to, uh, Simon the Righteous, Antigonus, the five pairs, and then the Gamliel line up until Shimon ben Gamliel, who dies in the war. So th- there are those who will say this is a legitimate old document that has nothing to do with the rest of Pirkei Avot. I'm inclined to accept that point of view, in which case that the, the, the um, uh, arrogating Shimon HaTzadik to, to the Pharisaic cause is a pretty old uh, development. When did the Pharisaic cause start... start uh Sometime in the late second century BCE, when they're duking it out with the, with with Yochan, with John Hyrcanus and Aristobulus, um, and then they end up taking over under Salome, which we'll talk about maybe five six weeks from now. Okay, so <coughs> what else happened in this period of time in the Second Temple era? What happened to the Levim? So we uh, we mentioned the Levim in, in the first couple of talks that they didn't want to come to the, the Second Commonwealth because there was no cushy job for them. That the Kohanim had what to look forward to, but the Levim really didn't. And so that's sort of be coerced into, into showing up to Eretz Yisrael. Well, the Levites, very unimportant in the Hellenistic age, Antiochus III rescinded their tax privileges. How about that? With the exception of two subgroups of Levim. Who are they? the temple singers and the temple scribes. And the reason why is because in Greek culture, music and the secretariat are very important. Greek culture prizes music as a very valuable thing. And bureaucracy, red tape and all the like, requires a, a professional class of scribes, which we'll, get a, we'll talk about more about soon. So the Levim who served in those purposes were exempt from taxation. Everybody else, if your name, last name was Levi... But you didn't really do much? Too bad, you're paying taxes. Okay. Jerusalem was poor and economically insignificant in the early Greek age. Access to luxuries did improve on, the, on account of being part of the Ptolemaic Empire, but it wasn't until Jerusalem was the capital of the Hasmonean state that the city really saw a boom. So always keep this in mind. We, th- we tend to think of the large cities as economically successful and Jerusalem being the largest of the Judean cities, but that's not really true until it's a capital of a country. As long as it's just uh, the biggest city in, in a backwater province, it's, it's, it's basically a poor place. The countryside was exclusively agricultural. The olive branch. Why is the olive branch a symbol of peace? Noah. Well... That's a symbol of that God's not going to kill everybody. But um, why is the why is the olive branch a symbol of peace? Long lasting. Okay, the olive olive uh, trees will only produce fruit if you let it grow for about fifteen years. It takes a long time to cultivate an olive uh, garden, and it can be easily destroyed in in, in you know the, the the ravages of war. And then you have to wait almost a whole generation for it to, be, to, to, to recover what you lost. So an olive branch represents a long period of the absence of hostility, where basically everything was stable. So during the hundred years of Ptolemaic rule, where there was a sustained peace, it was a time when the vineyards, uh, the olive groves, the fig trees were successful. The land was very profitable. Now, I said that in the late Talmudic period, the, tax, the system of taxation stripped everything bare. That it means that agriculture was was booming, but the profits of that agriculture were being siphoned off to the administering authorities, and the the, the average farmer didn't get the fruits of his own labor. I mean, the Torah refers to that as a curse. You'll you'll plant, and you'll you know things will grow, but the go, but the goyim will eat it. It's in the, to- the tochacha. 
So, good harvests and peace tended to yield an increase in the birth rate, plus new immigrants came from the diaspora, so that the overall population of Eretz Yisrael grew. Why, why does this matter at all? Why do I care that there was a, a tremendous increase in population in the 3rd century BCE in Eretz Yisrael? It matters because when we get to the Hasmonean period, you can only win if you have population to sustain an army. Yes, it was Rabim Ba'ad Ma'atim, but if you're that Ma'at, you're not going to win. Okay? Mark my word. If you're that small, you can't win. And there's a line in, in, uh, in the movie Exodus where Paul Newman says to his uncle, to, to, to Jabotinsky, he says, um, population, that's the greatest thing that the Haganah did. We brought in Jews to the land of Israel. Because you can't have a state if you don't have population. So the, the, base, the relative peace and prosperity of, of the previous hundred years gave the, the, uh, allowed for the critical mass to sustain in the next century an independent commonwealth. Very, very, very uh, crucial point. Okay. Now, the Kohanim. The Levim had it, had it rough. They didn't even want to show up. What about the Kohanim? So the laws of the Torah, which give them 24 gifts, the Chavdalad Matnot uh, Kahuna, were designed for small-time agriculture and um, the simple life of the first temple period. But it wasn't designed to sustain large numbers of priests living in an urban environment. I mean, how are they supposed to take agricultural gifts if they live in, a, in, a, in the back alley of a, uh, of a city? Where, where, are the, where are the gifts coming from? And if there are so many of them, because there was a di- di- disproportionate number of Kohanim in the Second Temple period, because they went in large numbers thinking that there was, life was going to be good and they were going to live off the Temple, so people are going to starve. And in fact, some did. There is an expression in the Talmud, Mechazer uh, al-Hagranot. What does that mean? It means that they went from place to place, from threshing floor to threshing floor, begging the Israel farmer, give me truma, give me this, give me, give me truma smaiser, give me whatever's coming to the to the Kohanim. I'm desperate. Please feed me. That was never supposed to be the case. They were supposed to have a dignified existence as a as a you know a, a hierarchy, a religious hierarchy. But it didn't work out that way for a lot of them. They were they had to go begging from place to place. Um, only those Kohanim who were permanently attached to the temple apparatus, were able to get rich. Most Kohanim were not so attached. They were part of a mishmar, and the mishmar was one out of 24, which means that two weeks a year, they were eating their, their, their meals uh, off the public uh, dime. But other than that, in the Chagim, how did, they, how did they eat? Answer, either they had to work, the fruit of their own, uh, of their, of their own labors, or beg. Okay? So, because you could be uh, sustained if you attached yourself to the temple apparatus, that was an incentive for the Chashmonai family to oust the Tzadokite line and come to dominate the temple themselves. That's a little bit of a chutzpah of me to say this. I mean, we, we view the Chashmonaim, the Maccabees, as heroes of, of the Jewish past, and we should never say anything disparaging about them. But I'm saying there was a financial motivation, aside from whatever religious issues they were in fighting the uh, forced Hellenization, they had a financial motivation in coming to take over the temple, which they would do in the year 153. Okay. Well, they, they did battle against Mityavnim, and the Mityavnim included elements of the priesthood. The guys who bribed Antiochus to, to have office, some of them really were Kohanim. Uh, they, they went to, yeah, people died. But they were, they were the good guys. They were, they were legitimately the good guys from 168 through the 150s fighting the good fight on behalf of Judaism against those people who would destroy the Torah. It's only from the 130s and onward that you have a legitimate criticism of the Chashmonaim for aggressive military uh, policy. It was the Hanukkah. Yes, 164 is Hanukkah, 168 is the beginning of the persecution. Okay. Um, What about slaveholding at this time? I mentioned in a uh, prior lecture that basically there is no evidivri. The Hebrew slave doesn't exist after the days of Nehemiah. 
But foreign slaves were in abundance. The Evid Kenani, which is not really a Canaanite, is just simply a non-Jew. Were you allowed to emancipate your slave? Why not? Why not? So the Torah says, La'olam bahem ta'avodu. They shall work for you forever. No, that's only regarding a Jewish slave who pierces the ear. We're talking about the Canaanite slave, so the Gemara says, it's a machlokis, two opinions. One says, you're not allowed to, re- to emancipate them. The other says, no, it's a discretionary matter. It's a machlokis, Akiva and Yishmael. But, in fact, did people emancipate their, their heathen slaves in Second Temple times? Probably, in the most, most, for the most part, not. Okay? They were heathen slaves. Heathen, heathen slaves. Heathen. And I use the word heathen for a reason, because although they were supposed to be converted to quasi-Jews, it didn't always happen. And they didn't always adopt uh, the religious ways of, of, of Jewry. Uh, they were sexually loose, and in terms of idolatry, they were suspect as well. So, how did people feed their slaves? Originally, the, 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 the standard practice was that the slave ate at the table of the master. That just as the master was having brisket for dinner, so too the slave had brisket for dinner. Eventually that changed. And the policy was you give rations, slave rations, to the slave population, which wasn't the same food that you, the master, were eating. It was lesser tier stuff. You know, if you were having wheat, he was having barley, which was like animal fodder. Um, and that, that, that was a, a significant change. Where do we see uh, a Shemitz, a, a bit of this, in the literature, I've been quoting this book a few times already tonight, Pirkei Avot, in Antigonus of Soho, Don't be like a servant who serves his master for the sake of receiving pras, the ration, the slave ration, but rather be a, slave, be a servant who serves his master not for the sake of the ration and have the fear of heaven upon you. So that's our uh, obligation vis-a-vis God. We're not supposed to do things for the spiritual, for the divine reward. But the, the, the mashal, that's, that's the nimshal, but the mashal is about an actual slave. So we see that whereas in the ancient days the slave ate well and was sort of part of the family, by the later period of Antigonus, the slave is not part of the family. The slave is, is drek and is given rations and is treated poorly. Okay. So you, you don't need a lot of money to be a slaveholder. You have to feed them. So if if you're in an agricultural society and there's a some, something of a surplus, then if the only thing you have to worry about is food, you have food. As for clothing and shelter, it doesn't cost that much. You don't give them that much. Okay. Um, what about the the priestly scholars? So here's I, I mentioned the Chachamim earlier. In the ancient days, only this, the uh, the Kohanic class um, had scholars learned in the lo- the so-called law. But by the Macedonian period, that was no longer uh, going to be adequate. Because the Kohanim are busy at the Mizbech, at the altar. Lay scholars and scribes are going to be needed to keep records, to answer technical questions, and to do all the sorts of things that the Greek bureaucracy requires. Because remember, the Torah is the law of the land. It's not just that I have to uh, put on tefillin or sit in a sukkah because God wants it. I have to do it because the Macedonians are going to to punish me if I don't do it. That's That's the law of the land. Dina de Malchuta. So the Jew, okay. So the Jews enforced the law upon fellow Jews, but with the permission of the the the, the, the Syrian Greeks. So since the law of the land requires um, accurate uh, implementation, you're going to need to have lawyers. So the, the, the these new uh, scribe scholars are basically lawyers. Um, <coughs> there are many more documents in this period than there ever were before. So the scribe is both a penman and a legalist. In the year 200, the scribes of the temple were recognized as part of the hierarchy, and they were given tax exemptions. Now, it, would be, it would be wrong to say, we wrong, to say that these sofrim were the predecessors of the rabbis. That's incorrect. 
The Sofrim are not the predecessors of the rabbis because they had very different methods. The Sofrim write things down. Ketav. The rabbis, Torah al Peh. Everything was oral. It was in the memory bank. So who were the predecessors of the rabbis? The Chachamim. Chachamim are not the same thing as Sofrim. Granted, in rabbinic literature, we have a concept known as Divrei Sofrim, which is functionally equivalent of Durabonon, which is why people erroneously believe that the Sofrim are the predecessors of the Rabbonon, because in the nomenclature, they're basically the same thing. But as a historical matter, it's just inaccurate. Okay, the Sofrim write stuff down, they write contracts, they know the law, but they're not the predecessors of Chazal. Those are the so-called Chachamim, Chachmei Yisrael. Was there widespread knowledge of Torah? That's an interesting question. So in the book of Jubilees, it is assumed that widespread knowledge of Torah will not happen in the days, until the days of Mashiach. Obviously you got it wrong, because there's plenty of Torah study around. But when did this occur? So Ben Sira in the year 190 begins to, su- to suggest uh, that we have widespread learning, elementary schools for all the students, that the kids should have you know, basic knowledge of their religious heritage. And Ben Sira distinguishes between, quote-unquote, the students of Scripture, on the one hand, and outsiders on the other. So students of Scripture versus outsiders. That's Ben Sira. 300 years later, what would the rabbis do? The very same thing. What are the categories? Chaver, or Tamid Chacham, and Amharetz, or Bur, the, the real low class. So this, uh, the haves and the have-nots of religious knowledge begins in the Ben Sira period, but continues uh, even to this day, but certainly in the, in, in the rabbinic period. Okay. Um, according to the letter of Aristius, which is the late 2nd century BCE, the scholars are equally divided among the 12 tribes of Israel. That just goes to show you that it was no longer monopolized by any one sector of society. Anybody, regardless of your genealogy, could become a scholar of the Torah as is true today. It's, 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 an, op- it's an open field. Um, what year? This is around 200? This is around 100, when, when, uh, around 120 when Aristius is written. So, but what about Sargon and what about Nebuchadnezzar when they, when they spread everybody out and I thought that some, the, the, that's when the tribes were lost. Okay, so they, they were lost, but they weren't entirely lost. And even if they were entirely lost, there was a, 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 a fiction or a pseudo-fiction that they were still around. Um... Elements of all 12 tribes are probably still around, but they believed it. Okay. Um, the, the movement towards a Torah-centric Judaism was designed to counter Hellenistic influence. But ironically, the very idea of education based upon a single book is itself a Greek idea. So, in many ways, the fight against Hellenism was by adopting elements of Hellenism. By contrast, in Egypt and Babylonia, the the clergy maintained their monopoly over religious knowledge and it dwindled to the point that they couldn't read their religious writings in their own language. We can read the Torah in Hebrew. Okay, I can, most of you can probably, and our ancestors could 2,000 years ago, 2,100 years ago. But if we were Goyim, living in, in Egypt, and we were not the, the Macedonian Egyptians, but the old-fashioned Egyptian Egyptians, or we were native Babylonians with the old Babylonian heritage, we couldn't read our own literature. Why? Because it was lost. The, the monopoly was preserved by the priesthood, and the priesthood went down. The priests didn't, priest didn't want people to know, and they themselves were inept. And, yeah. Okay. So, the Midrash talks about um, the gold taken from Egypt at the time of the Exodus as compensation for years of slavery. Why does that Midrash exist? So we, we, we touched upon it a couple of weeks ago. It's because Alexandrian Jewry was uncomfortable with the passage that said that the Jews despoiled the Egyptians. So every now and then, a Midrashic passage represents the delicate political situation of a specific Jewish community. Similarly, the Aramio Vedavi, which is referring to uh, Yaakov, my father was a wandering Aramean, is understood in the Haggadah as an Aramean tried to destroy my father, that Lavan was a bad guy, an Aramean who tried to hurt our people. So Yeshomrim, there are those who would argue that that was written just before 
the, the Seleucid conquest of Eretz Israel, when the Ptolemies were still in control, and the Jews were trying to curry favor with the Egyptians by bad-mouthing the Syrians. So, sometimes you have elements of the old Midrash that show the, uh, the precarious position of Jews uh, in, their, in, in, in their moment. Okay. What writings do we have from this period of time, this late 3rd, early 2nd century BCE, from the Jewish community? Nothing from that period is in the Tanakh, except for the book of Daniel, and maybe some of the Tehillim. Um, what, what was being written at that time? Pseudepigraphic works, the pseudepigrapha. Why? What is a, pseudep- what is a pseudepigraphic work? What, explain to me what that is. Okay, it, it says that this is the writing of some figure who lived a long, long time ago. Except that it really isn't that person's writing. It's, it's a contemporary writing that is falsely attributed to some Zohar earlier figure. Huh? Zohar is an example. Zohar is an example of that, yeah. So, why at this time in history is that so popular? Why is nobody saying, this is my book, I wrote it, you know, buy it for me, buy a copy for twenty nine ninety nine. Because there's no canon, so you could... Uh... Yeah. Who, who knows which one is the right one? All right, so the, the idea that there's no canon is very, so it's very tempting to pass something off as ancient in the hopes that it'll eventually enter into a so-called canon. Um, but, but, gives, but doesn't it also give legitimacy? Exactly, it gives legitimacy. So there are three reasons why. Number one, non-Jewish cultures were doing the same thing, and Jews followed the Goyim. Number two, Hellenistic civilization um, viewed anything that was novel, novelty, as suspect. If it's new, it's got to be, uh, you know, uh, something, something suspicious about it. It had to be part of history. If it's from the ancient past, oh, that's important. And thirdly, books had to be part of a framework that was familiar to the reader. And the Jewish reader is familiar with what? Only the Bible, the Tanakh, but most importantly, the Torah. Uh, more so than the Nevi'im and Ketuvim. So therefore, what kinds of figures are going to be the supposed authors of these books, the Twelve Tribes, the Testament of the Twelve Tribes, okay, Reuven through Binyamin, uh, Hanoch, Enosh, Adam. Uh, These are really ancient figures who supposedly wrote this stuff, but really didn't. Okay, what about synagogues? So synagogues begin in the diaspora, but eventually uh, become popular even in Eretz Yisrael, and it goes as far as Jerusalem as the Temple Mount at some point. When does the liturgy take off in earnest? Well, what's the most important piece of liturgy that we have? Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Achad. When did that become a daily prayer? When did it become a daily prayer? Any guesses? It's according to the Mishnah and Talmud, it was part of the of, of the Temple liturgy. But that but that Mishnah and Talmud is talking about very late Second Temple period. So when does it first happen? Well, before fifty around when the when the Gemara was uh, taking off. No, but the Mishnah talks about Shema. Uh, so so every day. Every day, yeah, morning and evening. So the, the the earliest evidence that Shema is a prayer is that in the Targum Shivim, in the translation of the seventy, the Greek translation of the Torah. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 has a special introduction, which is normally not the case. There's, there's, a, there's a departure from, a, a, from a, a hyper-literal translation of the text. There's a couple of lines of, of like a preamble. That wouldn't be true unless there was something special about the Shema. Most likely that it was part, that was part of a nascent liturgy, that this was already being said, if not by everybody twice a day, at least by some people at some point in time. Okay. Another law that comes about uh, in this period of time is the obscuring of the Tetragrammaton, the name of God. The four-letter name of God must have some kind of correct uh, pronunciation that we don't know what it is. What you see written in the uh, the Siddur well, the art scroll doesn't, doesn't actually have anything. It just has the letters with no vowelization. But if you go to like the Birnbaum or the Koran, I think there, there is vowelization. And it's the same thing as Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud. Every now and then, it's the same as Elohim. For example, in the Haftorah, a lot of times it's, it's pronounced Elohim. And if the Balkore gets it wrong, you have to correct him. He has to be very careful what shame Hashem to use. 
But we don't know the, the correct pronunciation of the most sacred name. At some point in time, they did know it. Why was the knowledge lost? Because it was preserved only among a select few in the temple hierarchy, and it was um, uh, said under cover of a cacophony of sound of the Levite choir. So that even when the Kohanim blessed the people, or the Kohen Gadol and Yom Kippur said the name, nobody really heard it. You heard something, but you didn't know what you were hearing. Why did this happen? So one explanation is simply, well, the name of God is very special, very sacred, and we have to be extra careful not to abuse it. But the other point of view is, part of the monopoly of the, the Jerusalem temple over Judaism. The goal in the Second Temple period was to not have the same competition for religious worship that, was exi- that existed in the First Temple with the Bamot. Now the truth is, even in the Second Temple, there were competitors. There was the Samaritan shrine at Grizim. There was the temple at Leontopolis in Egypt. There was a temple uh, at Lachish. There were other temples. But... Why Jer- didn't they just create another name for God? Uh, so, <laughs> well, <laughs> the Samaritans basically did that. So... The, the point is, you, the, the Jerusalem authorities would like to have absolute control over the, the, the religion of Israel. And one way of doing that is have, having knowledge of the name of God be exclusively in their possession. I don't know that story. I don't know. These are crazy stories. Beats me. <laughs> we have plenty of crazy stories yeah. ourselves. Okay. Um, next piece. The Jews of the Hellenistic period did not believe in the afterlife. Today, that's a, an, an animamin, an essential element of, of our religious faith. But, if you look carefully at the sources, what did the people of that time believe? That reward and punishment exists, but in this world. That the gemul, the uh, retribution, or for that matter, uh, reward, is going to come to you in this life. And so, uh, what we're going to see in later weeks, the big divide between the Sadducees and Pharisees is on this very point. The Sadducees considered the afterlife to be like a treasonous, in the sense that if you believed in, in, in an Olam Haba, then you might be willing to die a pathetic martyr's death here, instead of fighting for honor, and for the honor of the nation. Better you should fight for a cause, and maybe even have a chance of winning in the Olam Hazeh, than to give it up for some supposed afterworld. Um, okay, why did Shimon Atzadik add Gemilut Chasadim to the uh, the three pillars on which the world stands? I understand Torah because Torah is now becoming popular, you know, the popular study of Torah among the masses. I understand Avoda because he was the high priest and he controls the Avoda and had, had long been since the way of worshiping God. But why Gemilut Chasadim? So the common sense. Well, you're right. You're right. Uh, just like Din Emet Veshalom at the end of the, the chapter, justice, truth, and peace. But okay, so that's part of it. Supporting the the the, uh, the priestly class was something they desperately needed, and, you're, and, and Jews are only going to do it if they have that charitable fervor, that charitable feeling. But if you're a miser, if you're a uh, you know a Scrooge McDuck, you're not going to give to the poor Kohen. So Gmul Chasadim supports his own cause. But beyond that, it's at this time the wealth. Um, the gap between the rich and the poor was growing. Those who did well in tax farming and other ventures in the late Ptolemaic and early Seleucid period were fabulously wealthy. But there were a lot of people who were desperately poor and who were crowding in the, uh, the, the, the urban centers. And so how do these people live? You've got to be nice to them. Uh, something that wasn't as necessary when everyone was, their own, was, was an independent farmer who could support himself by, by, the, by the fruit of his labor, by the crops. Okay. Uh, one last point for tonight. Um, the Jews learned from the Greeks to ask the question, how did the deity come to be known? How did the deity come to be known? Meaning, how did mankind discover, discover God? I mean... So you made up the story of Abraham. Okay, so, in answering the question, God's call to Abraham became Abraham's quest for God. If you read the Torah, what does it actually say about Avraham and God? It says, God spoke to Avraham. 
It doesn't say anything about Avraham being a religious thinker and bucking the trend of, of idolatry uh, because he discovered something. No, it says God spoke to Abraham. Simple as that. Maybe it was a sudden epiphany that God, Abraham didn't even know about God and he hears a voice. So, so the Jews invent those stories about Abraham because, like the Greeks, we want to know how did God come to be known to, to mankind. Answer, we thought about, we pondered the questions. or our, our, our forebears pondered this question and came up with an answer. But why did they come up with the answer? So, Abraham's, in Abraham's quest for God, he was self-taught. The, 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 the Midrash says this very clearly, that he was self-taught. His, the Klyot, the, the kidneys, taught him Torah. He thought about it, and then from himself, he, he, he deduced the Torah without a revelation. Okay? And he deduced the designer from the design. You look at the world, the design, and you think about it, and you say, there must have been a designer. Intelligent design. There you go. Okay. So, what did he look at? So, some say he looked at the heavenly uh, movements, um, or he looked at the weather weather patterns. But whatever it is, something in the sky, in the celestial orbit, he figured out, Abraham the stargazer, figures out the truths of the world, the theological truths. Is there a, 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 a hint of this in the Torah? Yes. The notion of, Av- of God telling Avraham, look up at the sky, can you count the stars? So on the basis of that pasuk, we have this Jewish slash Hellenistic notion of early mankind thinks about the bigger picture and figures out there must be a God because of what he sees up, up in the sky. Okay, so that's the, the influence of, of Greek thought on the development of the Midrash as we, read, as we go back and read Sefer Beratius. Yeah, but for whatever reason, we prefer not to go back that far. We prefer the patriarchs over the pre, the, the, the antediluvian stuff. Yeah. Okay, so we'll stop here. Uh, should we have a class next week? Yeah. Yes, okay, yes, good.